Before today's episode, we here at the Patient Stew Podcast would like to thank our sponsor, Iron Horse Racing, for coming on and sponsoring this episode for all you good folks out there. Iron Horse Racing has no markup fees, state-of-the-art communication, and unparalleled transparency. So come see why IHR is one of the most exciting horse partnerships out there. For more information, please visit IHRacing.com or on Twitter at RacingWithIHR. Use the code PODCAST and you can actually be eligible for a special gift. And and include that, that you're hearing it from us uh, when you reach out to them. So remember, Iron Horse Racing, if not now, then when? And we're live, pal. Welcome to the Peach and Stew Podcast. I'm Stu. Filling in for Peach today. Don't worry, he will be back Wednesday when we get back together and uh, talk the wide world of sports. Uh, but today, uh, I'm going to get right down to the nitty gritty. Part one, Mike Maloney, the Michael Jordan of horse players. He wrote Betting with an Edge. It is phenomenal um to anyone interested in horse racing thinking about getting into the game it is a wonderful read and within it are a lot of the seeds in formulation of of the major concepts that a lot of people um take into account when betting right uh to understand the game this is that introduction the intermediate intermediary and a little bit advanced information that we that we need to to become successful in this game um so please reach out to at looms boldly on twitter he will have some copies uh last time i checked he has a few he has a few so reach out hit him up um it is on amazon but it's a little pricey it's a little pricey. People hoard it like it's gold, and it is. Um, but yeah, just I can't thank Mike enough. He's one of the sweetest gentlemen ever. Um, a, a true, a true steward for the game, and uh, hopefully you you find uh, him the same way I did, and that was uh, very like I was just sitting there like, okay, I'm I'm going to school today. I'm gonna learn. Um, so, uh, this is part one. Part two drops uh, a week from today, so Monday, when you're listening to this. The, I don't know what the date is. Uh, so, what? Maybe the 18th? The 18th of May will be part two. And, and in that, we're going to go into broader issues about the game. Uh, some issues, how we can fix it, some ideas to make the game better. Uh, and, and that's a very fun show. Uh, Wednesday, me and Peach. Friday, Emmett Kennedy of the Final Furlong Podcast will come on. Um, please, please check that out. Uh, that was a very fun conversation. Also a two-parter as well. You'll see him, Mike and Emmett, back next week. Uh, but you don't want to hear me yakking. We're going to send it in to Mike. He's going to take over uh, our interview. Uh, but before that, please... 
at Peach underscore StuCast on Twitter. Like, rate, subscribe. And with that, here's Mike Maloney. Today's guest is an author of the book, Betting with an Edge, a professional horse player's life in thoroughbred racing. And he is, most importantly, the Michael Jordan uh, professional horse playing. He is Mike Maloney's. Mike, thank you for coming on. <laughs> thank you for having me, Alan. That uh, The Michael Jordan thing's kind of a joke. That uh, uh, My good friend Sam Bowie uh, hung that on me kind of in a you know, in a joking manner. So, uh, uh, don't, I don't want anybody to think I really believe that. Well, well, I think we believe it. And, and he played against Jordan and he got drafted in front of Jordan. So that's, true. Uh, are you watching the last dance at all? I did. I watched the first two episodes, uh, the other night. It, it was really good. I, I'm a, I'm a Jordan fan, so uh, uh, I really, I really enjoyed it. Looking forward to the to the rest. You know, I know people are tuning in for horse playing, but s- since we're talking about it, uh, do you follow other sports uh, b- besides horse racing? N- not seriously. I'm a I'm a UK University of Kentucky uh, sports fan and a Cincinnati Reds fan and a Cleveland Browns fan. Um, you know, and I've, I've, it's not like I've never made a bet on a ball game, but, uh, I've, you know, I'm a, I'm a lot better at horses. I've, I've figured that out over the years. Yeah. And, uh, by the way, you, you've got a program in Kentucky who I, I've been calling for in, um, to make a big move in the SEC East in the next few years. Cause, uh, what Mark Stoops is doing over there is kind of impressive i i really like what they're doing i'm uh eddie grand the offensive coordinator is a pretty good friend of mine i know a few other people on the staff so um i'm you know i really pull for those guys and and i really think they're doing it the right way you know they're uh every aspect of the program is better the the depth is improving um, and I love the way Coach Stoops approaches it. He's uh, he's respectful of the players. The players love him, but he still maintains discipline in the program, and uh, I really think they're on the right track. You know, and, and speaking of the right track, I, I think uh, it's just a perfect segue line right there because Betting with an edge. I talked with uh, your co-author uh, Peter Thomas Fornatel a few weeks ago, and we were remarking that it really, actually, is if if you read it and and you're a connoisseur of of books on the sport um, and how to either gambling or theories about it or methods, or there's a lot of material on it. But really, this book. Uh, you can put right up there with picking winners and Andy Beyer. And it's great because it's your story and it's how you think and process. But all that really starts uh, with your father, Bud, who um, is just the first thing you see is him uh, when he was a boxing. And he just is a complete uh, part of my French badass. Like he is awesome. Yeah, he he was uh, he could be a tough guy when he needed to be. He he boxed uh, all through his years in the Navy. Uh, he 
he um, he volunteered for the Navy at 16 and a half, and uh, uh, his father had to sign for him to to uh, to get him in, and uh, uh, he was sent to the uh, uh, to the occupational forces in in uh, Europe at the end of World War II. Uh, he, he didn't have to, uh, to do any fighting, which was good. He, he had a pretty good, he had a pretty good stint because he, uh, he was spending his furloughs in Casablanca and had lots of stories about his, about his time there. But, uh, he could be a tough guy when he needed to be. Uh, but he was, uh, he was a, a, a sweetheart at, uh, at heart and, uh, uh, a guy that would uh, was very loyal to his friends and uh, was a great dad, and, and nobody loved a day at the races more than my dad. He he is he comes across in the in the book. He's a character. He's he's a seminal figure. Uh, where did he start uh, enjoying horse racing, and and how did he impart that to you? Well, he didn't grow up around horse racing. He was one of fourteen kids. Uh, raised on a little farm in Kentucky and uh, when, when, you know, had no uh, experience with the horses at all. They had a couple of mules they used to ride and race on their farm. I, I will hear him tell stories about, but when he was, um, when he got out of the Navy, he was uh, released in San Francisco and he got a job there at a steel mill and uh, eventually found Bay Meadows Racetrack. And that's, you know, knew nothing about it, was just fascinated with it. And that's where his, uh, his learning experience began. He eventually worked his way back to, to Kentucky and became an auctioneer and um, was in the antique business and the auction business his whole, his whole life. And just... Uh, was always looking for the way to get to the racetrack. So uh, I kind of followed in some of those same footsteps. I wasn't an auctioneer, but I was in the antique business for uh, most of my life. And um, he and I were partners in the antique business for a while. And But, you know, it was the business always kind of uh, was a close second to trying to get to the racetrack. We, we you know, that was always the main focus. And, and it comes across in the book too, that um, he was, he, even though he, he started off not knowing uh, quite what, what he was doing and just enjoyed his, his time at the track. Like a lot of us do when we first go to the track, um, he, he developed into a pretty proficient handicapper, but, but you say in the book uh, too, not, not the world's greatest better in in how constructing tickets but he could share handicap yeah he 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 became a very good handicapper he was known as as the best handicapper in his circle and uh we used to sit at uh latonia at night which is present day turfway park uh used to be known as latonia uh and, and, and it's a racetrack in northern kentucky uh small track they ran, uh, still do run a lot at night, and they ran a lot at night both in, back in those days. Uh, we went there during the 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, and Dad had a table in the in the grandstand that he that he took 
nearly every night, so they kept it for him. And uh, many, many people that he didn't know would come by that table. They had heard that he was a good handicapper. They wanted to learn more about racing and more about how to handicap. And they would come by the table and just introduce themselves and ask my dad if he could show them a few things. And there were plenty of nights that the card ended at Latonia at 11 o'clock p.m. And I had school the next day or we had work the next day. And dad would sit there with someone he had just met and spend 30 or 40 minutes after the races going over the form and teaching them things that, that they were anxious to learn. So he was always uh, that guy that, that always was willing to, to teach what he knew and to talk racing with, with anyone, you know, whether they were uh, a, a close friend or, or someone he had just met. So it's, it's, it's easily fair to say that the foundational set of your principles and, and um, that you certainly expanded upon in, in later years, but your foundation was set at that time. Oh, um, yeah, you're exactly right, Alan. Look, you know, I, uh, I owe a lot to dad when it comes to, you know, to my success in, in playing the horses because not only his support and, and you know, his, his helping me through it, uh, emotionally and uh, all those years, you know, the, the, having someone that, was, someone that was really on your side and not fighting you, you know, thinking you shouldn't be going to the track. I always had that in my corner. But the main thing was that dad, he kept me from going down all these dark alleys in handicapping that led nowhere. He had already explored all those dark alleys, uh, you know, the, 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 the things that, uh, that people would, you know, old axioms around the track that, that people took to be true that maybe weren't necessarily true. Dad had already figured a lot of that out. So it kept me from wasting time on those things and left me free to, you know, to learn about, explore the things that, that, that might really help me. What was your father's uh, big things uh, then when, when he was teaching you, what was the big things he would look at when he was, uh, you know, maybe talking with you or explaining a race to you? Dad was a big proponent of fitness and, and racing was different back in those days in that uh, horses ran a lot more often. And they did, they did, the layoffs weren't as long as they are now in racing. So uh, it, it wasn't unusual at all for a horse to run eight or 10 or 12 days apart and run, you know, four or five times in that cycle. Well, that would be pretty unusual in today's racing world. You know, a lot of horses, especially for the, the better horses and the bigger trainers, uh, they might run once every you know, 30 to 60 days. Um, and the cycles are shorter. The horses don't stay in a, in a racing cycle. Uh, you know, a group races, a group of races that are, uh, packed together. They don't, uh, they don't stay in those cycles for as many races now. So you know, racing's changed a lot, but it, I've never lost the, the idea of, of, 
wanting to to be sure that your horse was was totally fit for the distance that you were asking him to run today. Um, the, you know, I, I still find it in, important. It, the approach to it might be a little different than it was then, but it's still a very important thing. And another big uh, thing that Dad focused on was was a horse's finish and how strongly he could come down the, the stretch at the end of the race. Today we talk about that in terms of late pace or late pace figures. But, you know, he was a little ahead of his time that way because uh, he, uh, he would usually lean toward the horse that he felt had the strongest finish. Um, but he, he hated to bet a horse that, that made the lead or came from a little behind and made the lead in the stretch and then got run down in the stretch and lost. He, he hated that. So he, it, it, usually if his horse ever hit the front, it, it was a winner. And, you know, it's, it wasn't all uh, uh, betting, uh, especially in, in the first part of that book, because um, it it's also goes into your life. And, and you've explored a lot of different uh, a lot of different jobs within the industry, namely uh, being a trainer and uh, owner. Uh, how, how did that really fall into you, your lap and and uh, do you do you still miss uh, training? <laughs> well, you, Alan, I was never actually a trainer, but I did. Work. Oh, that's right you you uh, you hired somebody, but uh, I'm thinking back to the farm. Right, right. I, where I, I I worked closely with the horses, uh, but but the uh, but, and there were a group of of three of us that worked together, and the the part, the story in the book that you're talking about. We was we were in our twenties, and um, a group of it started out as a group of seven of us that were having beers one night, and we all decided that we wanted we didn't none of us had any money, but we wanted to have we wanted to own a racehorse, and uh, we decided if we could come up with five hundred bucks a piece, that if seven of us could go in and we could we could buy a horse. Well four of the guys, when it came time to put up the money, they, they lost their nerve, but, uh, three of us decided to go ahead with it. And, um, we, we really had to stretch things in order to put together the money to buy the horse. We ended up finding a horse for $2,500, uh, at Latonia. We claimed the horse at the track I was talking about earlier. And, um, we, we, barely had the money to scrape together to claim the horse and we didn't have money to pay after we got the horse we didn't have money to pay a training bill so we decided to train the horse ourselves, and and that, that's what you're talking about but I never actually had yeah. a trainer's license one of the the guys that he knew more the by far the most about training a horse of the three of us so he was an uh, was a groom for a for a uh, real trainer at the time, and he got his trainer's license and uh, became the trainer of our horse. I was more or less a glorified groom, uh, and the third guy became the exercise rider because we 
we didn't really want to pay an exercise rider either. So he was a, a lightweight guy that, that had been on a horse before. So it was pretty much a circus. We were the laughing stock <laughs> of the backside because you had three 20 something year old guys that two of them knew basically nothing about uh, the backside myself and the, and the exercise rider and uh, who was actually ended up being a banker and was working at a bank uh, at the time he was doing this. I was working full-time in the antique shop. So in order to train our horse, we would, we would meet at 5 a.m. and get the horse out of the stall, get him exercised, you know, take him to the track. The, uh, the banker would, would ride him. Uh, I would get the tack on him and the saddle. The trainer would go to the, go to the track uh, with the horse and explain how he wanted him exercised that morning or how he wanted him worked if he was ready for a workout. And meantime, as soon as he left the stall, I had the pitchfork and I'm uh, cleaning the, the crap out of the stall and putting down fresh bedding and getting the water ready for when he came back. When he came back from the track, I would get the tack off, bathe the horse, and then do what we call hot walking, which is basically just turning left endlessly around the, the shed road. Uh, to let the horse cool out before you put him back in the stall. Uh, so we, we started that process, and that way we could afford the horse. And uh, we were lucky enough that we had picked out uh, a horse with a little bit of ability, and uh, his name was Patent Applied For. He was a uh, six-year-old gelding. Uh, when we claimed him and he, uh, he never – we had him for a year. He never ran worse than fourth. He won, I don't know, three or four races during that time. And uh, uh, one of the my favorite parts of the book uh, is his last race for us. He won a race at Churchill Downs with Pat Day on board. And uh, uh, that's a, that's a that that's the that's the most most like heart wrenching story in the whole thing. Because, uh, and I don't want to spoil it, but that that is an awesome, awesome story. Well, I'm 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 glad to tell it if you want me to. I, yeah, please, uh, please. I, I, so we we had grown so attached to this horse over that year. Uh, you know, we treated him like you know he was secretariat. Uh, all our friend and friends and family. Uh, fell in love with the horse and he was constantly being fed hand fed carrots and peppermints and and we brushed him until you know he he looked like uh you know you could uh you could comb your hair in in his coat by you know it just had that much sheen and uh you know the horse was happy uh you know he knew that that uh that we all loved him and uh but when you're in the lower levels of racing, most of the racing is, is the claiming game. So in the, in the claiming uh, ranks, every time you race your horse, you have to make him eligible for sale. And you have no choice in the matter. When you enter the horse, he's automatically eligible for someone else to buy him. And you don't have any say in it. 
So we were lucky enough we got by for a year, nearly a year, with with patent applied for, and we were doing very well with him, but no one had claimed him up to that point, probably because he was an older gelding. And um, uh, the day that that uh, uh, that Pat Day won on him, I I was choosing the races, and because I was the best handicapper of the ownership group, and uh, I I put him in an aggressive spot at Churchill Downs. He was still running for much more than way over twice what we had paid for him. But uh, I knew there was some kind of outside outside chance that someone would claim him or buy him from us. But I didn't want to overmatch the horse. He had been, he was so honest and he was, he tried so hard. The, the last thing I wanted to do was, was put him in against a bunch of horses that were just too good for him. So I always tried to pick, spots where I thought he really fit and I thought he had a great chance. So in the process of doing that, we put him in the spot at Churchill Downs. He won. And uh, unfortunately there was one claim in and it, it wasn't one of the big claiming trainers. Uh, we had gotten by all of them. It was, it was a, a lady that was just getting into the game and, uh, uh, just like we had when we claimed him. So, uh, you know, he, he, uh, the, the story that, that I have in the book is my dad had just gone through uh, a, several heart surgeries and he was uh, in intensive care for weeks and was actually at a, in a, in a, uh, on a heart ward outside Chicago for months. And he had just come back and he was under doctor's orders not to, not to leave his bedroom at that time. And, um, uh, he, of course, when the horse was running at Churchill Downs, he insisted on coming and he and my uncle attended the races that day. Dad could barely, I was with the horse, so I didn't see him come in, but, uh, you know, I heard later that he had a hard time even getting inside the track and, and uh, but when he did, um, he had never been in a winner's picture at Churchill Downs. He had lived in Louisville for a big part of his life <clears throat> when he was in the auction business and loved Churchill Downs. So uh, I was anxious to get him in the winner's circle. After the race, Pat Day is on the horse. And uh, you have these three young kids that are taking care of the horse. And uh, it's the last race of the day. And I say, uh, you know, Mr. Day, would you, would it be okay if we held up the picture, the wind picture for just a, a second? My, my dad's been sick. He's never been in a wind picture at Churchill Downs. Could we hold, hold up the, the picture for a couple of minutes until he can get down to get in the picture? So Pat Day, being the gentleman that he is, said, son, if your sick dad is, coming down for his special wind picture, I'll stay up here till dark. So uh, we, we turned the horse around multiple times on the track for two or three, four or five minutes. I don't know, but way too long. The track personnel were getting upset with us and tell us we needed to go. Um, and uh, dad didn't cut, didn't make it. So I was worried about him. I told, uh, you know, I told, uh, Pat, let's go ahead and take the picture. He must not have been able to make it. 
So we go in the in the winter circle, take the picture. Uh, I take the horse, and I'm taking him back to the barns. You take him to a special barn after you've won a race. Um, they call it the spit box. It's it's just a detention barn where uh, the the state officials will take a urine sample and they'll take a blood sample and make sure that there weren't any illegal drugs in the horse's system. Well, I'm walking down uh, the track at Churchill Downs and there's nobody else left in the place. It's the last race of the day. We delayed the picture for at least five minutes. Everyone is gone. Um, and I'm just, yeah, I know I'm probably never gonna see this horse again. I've gotten so close to him. I've been with him every morning in racing. There's not a five day week, it's seven days. Uh, 52 weeks a year. So I've been with this horse every single day for a year. Um, and I, I, you know, I really cared for the horse. So I'm talking to him, patting him on the neck, you know, saying goodbye to him basically and walking down past the finish line at Churchill Downs on the track. And, and I think about, I start thinking about all the great horses that have run down the stretch at Churchill Downs, all the great riders, all the derby uh, stretch duels that, that happened right there. And, uh, you know, I'm just, uh, I'm, I, I still get a little emotional even after all these years, just thinking about it. And about that time I get to the, uh, I get to the turn past the finish line and I hear like some commotion up in the grandstand. And I'm like, you know, I turn my head and I'm still holding the horse walking him and I look up, and it's my dad and my uncle, and they have their hands up over their heads, just uh, screaming as loud as they can. And even though I'm a long way away, I can barely hear them. I know that uh, that my dad's okay, and I know that he's seen the race. So, uh, excuse me for getting emotional, but no, no, so you're you're perfectly fine. A lot of stuff tied up in that. And uh, but basically, every time I tell that story, I it I still get uh, a little choked up. But it was a it was a uh, it was a great moment for me, and and uh, uh, it's an illustration of uh, how close you can get to a horse, and an illustration of how much racing can mean uh, to a family. No, and I, I thank you for sharing that because that story is so powerful. Um, and it, like a lot of the stories in the book, they're it's they're intense stories. Some some are intensely funny, intensely uh, humorous, uh, but also in, intensely uh, emotional. Um, and it shines through. It's it's partly why the book is so great. Well, I appreciate uh, that. One, one, when you're one thing I want to say too is is my my uh, co-author Pete Fornatal, who is, is the the brains uh, behind you know what made the book readable or hopefully readable. Uh, but Pete did such a fantastic job. And, you know, it's, it's my life experience, but uh, it would have never come across as well as I, as I think it does without all the work that Pete put in. And, and uh, I just want to want to thank him again for all his hard work and, and, and what a great job he did.
Well, Pete is a fantastic writer. We spent a good portion talking about his writing exploits and hope to have him on again to talk about other works he's done. And, you know, going back to the to patent applied for, that that wasn't your only horse that you, uh, as an owner, had. I, how much further along past that point did, did you oh, keep I, going? I went on for, for decades after that, but uh, that was my first horse. Uh, we did so well with Patton that uh, even while we had him, uh, we, we ended up, we, you know, we claimed other horses with the winnings that we were making with, with Patton. And then we did well with, with most of the other horses. So, uh, you know, we weren't so much the laughing stock after, you know, after a couple of months, we, we were, we had a, some of the old timers scratching their heads, but, um, uh, we, we were making mistakes, but, uh, you know, we were also making some good claims, some good buys on the horses that we were choosing. And, uh, we had pretty soon we had four horses and I think we, the most that we had at one time was six. Um, and then I went on, you know, for decades having, you know, a, a horse or two or three, most all, you know, most all the time, just, you know, it, it, I found that it was good for my handicapping um, because it kept me in touch with trainers Um and it kept me in tune with what was really going on with the backside of the track. Um, when I say backside, I, you know, I know there may be some listeners out there that are not that familiar with racing. In, in racing, we talk about the backside and the front side. Well, the backside is, where, is the barns and the barn workers and the trainers. And the front side is you know, the clubhouse and the grandstand and where the people come to play the races. So... Uh, there's kind of two different worlds. You and my world had just been the front side. You know, I, I didn't. Uh, I learned my my handicapping and my gambling improved when I spent on the backside because uh, I saw that there were different types of trainers. I learned how trainers thought. I learned that you know basically in my mind there were two types of trainers there were there was the hard boot uh, who was a guy that was just totally about the you know how healthy is my horse how fit is my horse uh you know i'm gonna feed him right i'm gonna take care of him right those guys had like a sixth sense for they could just look at a horse's eye and say you know, I'm going to scratch him. I don't, I just don't think he's right to, he's something, you know, something doesn't feel right about him. And then they would end up being right. You know, they, they just, uh, they really understood the physicality of the horse. The other type trainer was kind of the marketing guy. He knew about horses and, and, and he may have, you know, the, the good ones had uh, insights into the physicality of horses also, but they usually didn't have that sixth sense that the hard boot trainer had, but the advantage that the marketing trainer had, the marketing trainer usually made more money than the hard boot because the marketing trainer knew how to smooth in the clubhouse and how to attract wealthy owners 
and he usually dressed pretty well and he knew how to play the game and he knew, he knew how to converse with, with the, the potential owners that had the money to invest in good horses that led to winning big races that led to getting more good horses. So, uh, you know, and, and, and when you're trying to figure out why a horse is in a particular race, it helps if you can, you know, dif- differentiate between those two types of trainers. Uh, it it, it, it kind of gives you some insight into why the horse might be placed where he is and, and how that might reflect on his chances in that race. You know, uh, that, that, that's fan. I I've never heard it quite put that way and I've never heard that information. <laughs> so I truly appreciate, uh, you opening up on that. Um, when there, there's a part in the book where I believe it's, it's, it's on a drive to or from Cincinnati. I forget the context. I have a dog eared somewhere where you, you made a, a, a conscious decision that you, you were going to try and make this a full-time gig. When about was that? And, and can you describe that decision and that thought process? Well, I, I was always interested in, in get becoming more involved in, in betting the horses. And I spent my training ground was just what you're describing. Alan was in the back seat of a, of a big sedan. Uh, my dad had a really good friend who ran a, a service station at a, in Richmond, Kentucky, which is just half an hour south of Lexington. And uh, back in those days, there weren't ADWs to bet with, and you couldn't go and, and bet simulcast races. If you wanted to bet races, you had two choices. You either found a bookie that would take your action or you sent the bet with some friend to the track, but your main option was the, was that you drove to the racetrack wherever they were running that day. Uh, so we would drive to from Lexington. We would drive to to Louisville, Kentucky. We would drive for Churchill Downs and Miles Park way back in the day. Uh, we would drive three and three hours and fifteen minutes one way to. Uh, just south of Columbus, Ohio, to Beulah Park. We would drive a couple hours to River Downs in Cincinnati. Uh, so we went to Latonia, which was about an hour and a half away in Florence, Kentucky, in northern Kentucky. And when I was growing up uh, and learning, you know, cutting my teeth on racing, I was in the back seat, and my dad and his friend Ralph the that on the uh the service station were in the front seat and ralph would always supply the car and it was always some 10 year old big sedan uh with plenty of room in the back so i i would be in the back listening to their conversation and 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 that's a lot of the way that i learned about racing so all the way to the track i would hear them talk about who they're going to bet and why and what kind of price they're going to get. And they don't know if this horse, they're going to bet it as a favorite or not. My dad didn't like to bet favorites. And then on the way home, I would hear, well, this is why this horse lost. This is why this horse won. 
so it was a great training ground. And I, you know, I wasn't back there sleeping or goofing off. I was listening because I wanted to learn. Well, I think the story that you're referencing is, is we're going to River Downs one day and uh, they, they're talking about a race and, and my dad and his friend and, and uh, they don't mention the horse that I like. Well, the horse that I like is a horse, I, I still remember his name. His name's Deputy Dog. And he was a, a speed freak. He always tried to go to the front. And if he made the front, he was, he was dangerous. But he was a very cheap horse. And, uh, but I had started a, a rough version of, of, of buyer figures. And Byer hadn't even written a, any of his books yet, but I was just doing a rough version of how fast was the track a certain day. And I keep a little uh, uh, index card in my wallet, and it had just notations on it of, the, you know, the track was two lengths faster this day than it was another day. So it was nothing, you know, it was nothing as sophisticated as buyer figures, but it was the same, uh, the same basic idea that how fast was a track one day as compared to another day. So my, my index card told me that Deputy Dog had run on a, on a slow day where the track was playing slow for his last race. And yet he still ran as fast as horses that were, that that were in against him today uh so even though he was cheap he ran for a lower claiming price so he ran in a in a lower level of competition than the horses that he was racing against today but i still just believed in the time so i i he was my selection so I usually didn't say anything from the back seat, but this time I chime, you know, I chime in and I say, "Hey, what about Deputy Dog in that race?" And they say, "No, nah, no, nah, you know, he's too cheap. Um, you know, he can't run with those horses. He doesn't have enough class." So we go to the we go to the races, and and um, Deputy Dog is a is a long shot. I don't bet as much as I was planning on betting on him because I respect my dad's opinion, especially. And uh, Deputy Dog goes to the front and wins comfortably and pays a nice price. And I have, you know, I, a big bet for me in those days might have been 5 or $10. So, uh, you know, I might have had $4, $5 on him. I don't remember. So on the way back, they eventually get to the Deputy Dog race and they're they're discussing why he won. And uh, I'm waiting for, hey, Mike, that was really a nice pick you made. But it never comes. So finally I say, hey, uh, you know, don't you guys think that, that was a pretty good pick maybe? And they say, no, that wasn't a good pick at all. He won. You got lucky. He won because... Uh, he just happened to get a good break out of the gate and, uh, you know, he made the front. So that didn't sit well with me. I was very respectful of my dad and his friends and, uh, I, I didn't say anything back to him, but, uh, sitting in the back seat, I thought, you know, 
it's all about who's the fastest horse. So it, it's the same thought that Andy Byer would so eloquently express in his book, Picking Winners. It, 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 he, Andy, at one point, I think in that book said, you know, finding the fastest horse is the way, the truth and the light in racing. So it was kind of that moment for me too. I, it, it, that's the moment where I decided it was all about the fastest horse. And I wasn't sure how often I could pick that, but that kind of solidified it for me that I was going to be on a lifelong journey to, to try to figure out how to do it. And you mentioned in that story about bias and it's such a, you go into it, you, you devote a whole section of the book on it. And I, I don't want to go too deep into it because it is a, it's a very, uh, it's a very vague, it's like a dark matter. We, we know it's there. We don't know what it is. We see it. Sometimes we don't others. It's one of those things that's hard to put a finger on, but it's there. What, what are some tips that you would say for people that, uh, you know, your, your weekend warrior that may play or, or uh, somebody that's, that's looking to grow their knowledge in this game. What are, what are some key factors you think in, in identifying bias versus just the, the best horse right. or the most fittest horse or the, the, the fastest the, horse one? The, to preface my remarks, I would say if – there's nothing more important that you can than you can that you can learn in racing and in handicapping than bias. There's also nothing more confusing and maddening than bias. So be prepared. Know that it's a worthwhile venture, but also know that it, it's going to be tremendously confusing and frustrating. Um, and it, it'll, it, it will take a while. Um, the, the number one thing I would say is when you see horses spaced out in a race, so in other words, a horse maybe wins by three lengths and then there's a gap of another five links between the second horse and the third place horse. And then maybe another gap back to the fourth place horse. Well, that's a little unusual in racing. So sometimes it can be that that's just the ability level of the horses. And usually you can tell that beforehand, but if you see a group of, of well-matched horses and they spread out the first five finishers are 15 links apart or even 10 links apart. There's generally a reason for that. And it's, it most often it's either an extreme pace scenario or there's a bias in play. So that's my first clue when I'm, when I'm watching is, you know, if I see a race space out like that, my bias alarm goes off. Now, uh, in the inverse of that, if you see, six horses come to the finish and they're a length or two apart, you can be pretty sure that there's no bias or very, very little bias on that racetrack. Um, the, 
to go beyond that, uh, if you're going to be serious about bias, you need to, uh, most people have a, that get serious about racing have a particular track that they focus on for some length of time. So maybe it's Saratoga in the summer. Um, if you're going to focus on Saratoga and you're going to try to improve your bias game, you need to do some, pay attention to the, what we call the track profile, which would be certain distances, certain surfaces have certain tendencies just statistically. So you would go back the last year or two or five or ever how far you wanted to go. And you would see, you would look at, uh, six and a half furlongs on dirt. What percentage of winners are within two links after a quarter mile? What percentage of winners are within two links after half a mile? So you do that at various distances on various surfaces, and you get an idea of the tendencies for that particular surface and that particular dis distance. Once you have that, that makes you more capable of making good bias decisions because there are some uh, inherent statistical probabilities built into each distance on each surface at each track. So you need to know those before you can really evaluate bias uh, properly. So that's the, that's the first step. Um, and, and the gapping of the horses will also give you, give you some clues. Um, but it's kind of just a trial and error learning process. Um, you know, I tried very hard in the chapter I wrote in Betting with an Edge to help people with this because I know with bias, because I know how maddening it can be. So I went into great detail about the different subtleties within the bias that that I've found over the years um, you know they, they, so I think that chapter is very useful you know if you're someone that's that that's not going to read the book I, I think it's more of a trial and error process uh, where uh, you know the the what I've already covered would be the best advice that you know that I can give you on And and going back on that, the the bias chapter, you you give some things uh, in that chapter. It, it's kind of like uh, uh, like you're making a dinner, and the dinner is how you approach a race and how you look at a card. Or, or sp you give specific examples from real life, real life. Like you did this, this is how you thought about it. So the bias plays into it, and also. Your, your trip handicapping plays into it as well uh, with some of the things you do to identify that. Is it fair to ask uh, you the question that, uh, to me in my mind, my, I've always thought about trip handicapping and pace handicapping as two separate things, but um, in rereading that chapter recently, uh, it, it almost seems like it's the same for you, if not very closely intertwined, well, they're, they're definitely intertwined because they both affect the, 
you know, the outcome of the race, and they both can, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the trip, a horse getting a good trip and getting a favorable pace scenario can lead to their optimum performance and vice versa. The horse that doesn't get the right setup, he can run horribly. And then you can match those two horses back up in two weeks. And that happens in racing all the time where the horse that lost by eight or 10 lengths that got a bad scenario, a bad setup, will beat the horse that got the good setup that beat him by eight or 10 lengths to two weeks ago. So it, 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 it's very impactful in racing. And it's how it's the best way for me to to get what we call value in you know in betting so you know you're you're you, you just want the best of it to me is what value is you you want a little more than than fair fair odds uh, and that's i think that's the essence of all gambling um it's hard to do that in in horse racing because you're the average takeout in horse racing is 20 percent uh so you know it's not easy to buck that over thousands of bets uh if you're if you're gonna try to beat that you you better have some you better have some insights and you better be able to create some edges for yourself in your selection process and the best way i know to create those those edges to be able to take that horse and feel confident in betting him and betting the horse that lost by eight or 10 lengths last time against the horse that beat him is to really understand the dynamics of biases and the dynamics of trips and the dynamics of pace. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's not easy to do that. It's a lot of work. Um, but it's, you know, it is, it is doable. It was a lot easier a lot more doable 20 years ago and it was even a lot more doable five years ago so racing is a game i you know i assume sports betting is that way too where it gets harder every year um i I don't know but um racing definitely has gotten harder um you the there's so much better information now that's readily accessible on the internet um and with computer programs and with uh, you know services like uh, uh daily racing forms formulator which is tremendous uh and in the time form us which is another tremendous tool so i use those both you know, every day, but, uh, you have artificial intelligence. That's a big part of the wagering pool in, in horse racing now. Um, and that is, uh, uh, that definitely makes, you know, squeezes your, squeezes your edge and it, and it becomes more pronounced in my opinion every year. So you, you know, you have to find ways to, um, to come up with opinions that aren't obvious. Uh, and I, and I think the, the, the bias and the pace and the trips are, you know, are the way, and I, I'd be glad to go into, you know, any of those, uh, in more detail, um, 
Alan, I did the trips especially. Don't don't let me just run away with this. Stop me anytime if you want to interject something. But no, hey, I, Mike, you, I'm sitting under the learning tree right now, man. Right. I'm gonna let you right. go right. as long right. as you want to go. I ain't gonna stop you. Handicapping, and I I can go for quite a while. Um, <clears throat> so um, the, the, let's take the trip trip handicapping part. If you're a fledgling horse player and you're serious and you want, and you want to learn. There's nothing better you can do for yourself than, than do some trip handicapping. What is trip handicapping? It's just uh, a, sh a shorthand notation that we use to write down uh, what happens to a horse in a particular race. So there's not any magic to it. It's, uh, uh, you know, years ago I used to have a little handheld uh, tape recorder and I would watch the race and just speak into that recorder and I would say the eight's out slow one nine's out slow one plus 12 is HPG the hard push gate you know and go through the whole race that way and all I'm doing is just observing I'm being a good observer I'm trying not to be a cheerleader for who I bet for on um, you know I'm trying to be a detached very uh focused observer of the race because I don't want to miss anything. And I'm, I want to know what the jockeys were, if the, any jockey was doing anything unusual, if he was urging a horse at a, you know, at an unusual part of the race, everybody's probably urging in the stretch. Not everyone is urging early in the race, a uh, hundred yards out of the gate. Um, you, you know, if a guy's doing that, if a jockey is, is doing that, why is he doing that? Does that suit the running style of the horse? Is that, if I was the owner or trainer, would I be telling him to do that? Um, so I want to know the, all those things. Well, my memory, I used to have a fantastic memory, not so much anymore. So, um, you know, when that horse runs next time, I can't remember every little intricate detail that I saw during the race. So that's what trip notes are for. It, it allows me to relive that horse's last trip, to relive his last race and bring that into focus, you know, in my mind really well so I can evaluate that performance and I, you know, and I can try to gain an edge for today's race what why i recommend it so highly for people trying to learn is that you are going to you're going to learn things that you don't know you're learning you're going to learn which you first of all you're going to learn what a good trip is a lot of people that have been going the races all their their whole life i sit next to them and they really don't know what trips win races you know um I had a conversation with a with a very high level trainer uh, a couple of years ago, and he was asking my advice on on a horse he had in, in a in a turf race, in a stake race, and I mentioned to him about a particular type of trip that I thought that horse that would be his best trip, that would be his be the best way to ride that horse and, and to attempt to get that trip for him. And he had no idea that that trip won the majority of turf races. 
we call it kind of an inside out trip where you save ground early. Go ahead. Something, something that Chad Brown uh, really yeah, is proficient at, correct? It, it's, it's, a, it's an inside uh, saving ground uh, early in the race. But then when turf races are won with explosive finishes, turf races are, are slow early, fast late. Dirt races are more fast early and slower late. So you can win a dirt race by just kind of running your opposition into the ground sometimes. You rarely ever see a horse win a turf race, a turf route anyway that way. So uh, the best way to win a turf route, in my opinion, is to save ground on most tracks, is to save ground early, then tip to the outside where you're unimpeded to finish explosively. Uh, on the outside part of the track where you have a free run at the most important part of the race. Does that still hold for you today? Is no, it still true or, no. or well, is it, you know, ever it, changing? it can vary from track to track, but yeah, it, I, I think that in 90% of the turf routes, the, the distance races in, in North American turf, I would, that's the, that's the trip I prefer. How many times have you seen a horse that's just loaded, that just has a ton of run, and the rider, you know, saving ground is good. I'm all for it. But once you get to about the three-eighth pole, that's usually on the turn, uh, you know, it's time to start looking for room to make that explosive finish. How many times have you seen a rider in a turf race that's loaded, that has horse, and is trying to weave his way through a maze of horses close to the rail and those horses are tiring and, and, you know, they're just roadblocks and the, and his horse is passing horses and it has forward momentum, but it, you know, there's, it's rare that it can finish explosively enough to beat the horses that are unimpeded on the outside that are just running free and have a full head of steam. Um, so, you know, that's the kind of thing that I look for in turf races. If the horse that tried to come up the, the inside and got in a, in a congested uh, spot and, and couldn't really run free and show uh, his true ability, runs back. Uh, and I project from the, you know, from the pace of the race and the post position and the rider uh, that that horse may get a better trip today, then, you know, that's the kind of thing you're looking for. You're just, uh, because the odds are going to be in, you know, unduly inflated on that horse in a lot of, in a lot of times. Now, handicappers are so sharp today that, uh, if, if the trip is too bad, if you have the horrible trip, uh, then it goes on everyone's watch list and the horse may get overbet next time it runs. So, you, you know, you have to kind of be aware of that too. But, um, you know, but the, the, most times the horse that, that got to save ground early, tipped to the extreme outside at the top of the stretch in a, in a turf race and ran very well and ran a big figure, most times that's, you're not going to get any value on that horse when it runs back. 
we've talked a lot about, uh, you know, you've gone over kind of a, a really great, uh, I'm taking, I'm going to re-listen to this, uh, honestly, uh, back because there's some things I'm hearing that I need to fix my life up on and, and have a come to Jesus meeting with, uh, but you were talking about speed bias and identifying value and all these things, but the handicapping part is only going to take you so far. And you do a great job uh, in the book talking about uh, money management and responsible betting. What percentage of your time and effort energy as a professional do you spend uh, between handicapping and money management and I'll, uh, you know, also in hand in hand with that response. You know, as time goes on, I spend more and more time uh, on, on structuring bets and and trying to manage money. Um, And you would think it would be the opposite. You you would think that once you learn those lessons that, you know, you're, you're spending all your time handicapping and you're on cruise control for how to make the bets after you've done it your whole life. <clears throat> well, that's logical. But what I, what I have found is since I've been, a, I've been a professional horse player since 2000 and, but I was betting, you know, big, big money for 10 or 15 years before that. <clears throat> but what I've found is that, I, I probably hit my peak in the amount that the amounts that I would bet, in, you know, maybe around 2005 or so. What I found is since then, I bet generally a little less every year. And it's not because I want to, and it's not, you know, because I don't, because I take days off or anything like that. Uh, it, it's, it's because I, I don't find bets that that I believe are long-term winners uh, as often as I did in 2005 or as often as I did in 2015. Um, so I have to, out of my menu of, of potential bets on a day, Every year, I have to force myself to not make the two or three percent lowest yielding of those bets. Um, so that's a big part of money management. It's just a macro money management for me, since I'm putting money at risk nearly every day. Um, I have to have a big macro overall you know, yearly gambling uh, idea to start the year with. And um, um, so what I'm trying to say is a, is a big part of my money management now is to, to, to get rid of, to eliminate some of the marginal bets that I made the previous year. Because if I hold on to those, which it's easy to do because, you know, if you've been successful at something for, you know, for years and years and years, as long as I've been playing the horses, you, it's, you know, human nature is to hold on to that and to to not change. But in this game, 
you're, you know, no one, I say in the book, and I do tell myself this every New Year's Day, uh, no one is guaranteed a living in gambling. You have to earn it every year. Just because you did it last year or just because you did it the last 10 years doesn't mean crap. You know, this is not like when I had my business, uh, you know, you get to a certain level in business and you can coast a little bit. And, uh, you know, if you're in a corporation, maybe you have, uh, uh, you know, just your standing, you know, means something. That doesn't mean anything in gambling or at least in betting horses. Maybe it does in other things. But, um, you know, if it doesn't, you know, you can you can have have a great 20 year career betting horses. And if you're not, if you don't have an edge on January 1st, the next year, they'll kick your teeth in. So um, that's, you know, a big part of money management for me is, is making sure that I don't lose sight of that, that I don't get carried away with myself. Um, is it fair to say that it, it really revolves around you just being patient enough and because I mean, anybody who's going to play is a game. Like if I go up to Laurel park, my, my local track and uh, I get there, I'll be there. One of the first people in the door. I love being at the track race. One comes up and it's like, well, you know, I do have 10 bucks here. Uh, I really want some action. Is it, how do you weigh right. like and, patience and versus the, action? You know, I apologize to the listeners. I'm probably talking a little too much about professional uh, gambling and money management. Uh, when you when you break it down to my buddies that go to the track and you know the 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 average weekend warrior, let's say. Um, although I'm, you know, I know guys that that love the races, you're more than a weekend warrior. You know, you're, there's more to it than that. Uh, um, yeah. The, the best advice that I can give is earn the right to bet more. It's not about how much you bet and how much you're putting at risk has very little success. I'm sorry, very little impact on what success you have to me that's a that's a dangerous crutch for horse players is oh you know if i had the if i had the bankroll i'd be crushing it i would have had that pick four and i would have had this and i would have had that well to me it's all relative i you know i've been in spots in my life where uh, you know i'm on a bad i'm on a bad streak and, uh, you know, I, it's, it's, it's all about going back to basics. You know, it's, I used to play a lot of baseball and it's about, you know, get coming up a couple inches on that bat and hitting something up the middle and making some contact. Uh, same way in gambling to me. Um, I think it's a great philosophy to let go of the, of the amounts and the chasing the $5,000 pick four. And, you know, you, you're, you're at a simulcast place or, or you're online and, and you see somebody post that they hit this for five grand or they hit this for 20. 
that's all, you know, that, that can be poison to you as a gambler. You know, if you use it for anything, if it's, if it's your buddy, be happy for him. But, it, it, you know, if it's somebody else, let it roll off, you know, don't pay much attention to it because you, the last thing you want to do is chase it. The, the, the way to, in my eyes, the way to become a good gambler is, is to start at the lowest level money-wise that you can start at because you don't want the money to confuse it. You want the money to be chips on the table where you don't have to worry, you know, play lower than you, than you're able to play and, and focus on winning, learn how to win. And then once you learn how to win at any level, then you earn the right to up the stakes. If, if gamblers, especially guys that are, that are trying to, to step it up, go more often, get more involved. If, if, if they would observe that rule, it'll save you a lot of heartache. I can, I can promise that. And you'll learn your lessons cheap because, you know, if, if, you're, if you become serious about some gambling game, three years into it, you're going to know a whole lot more than you know one year into it, no matter how smart you think you are. Yeah, you always hear the uh... – the euphemism uh, in horse racing that's that true. you pay for an education. And it's very true. You, you talk about uh, action bets, uh, as Jonathan Kinchin would say, kill bets. Um, it, it would, is it just a logical jump uh, from what you were just talking about to, uh, you know, when you go to a track and you've done the handicapping, figure out that one race that you have an opinion on and, and try and again, build, like you said, bring only enough that you can handle, but identify the one that's a great, and, that's and a go great after it. Alan. Very few people in my experience have the discipline to, to, to play that game. Uh, that's a very disciplined approach to bring, X number of dollars and to say, I'm only going to make one play or I'm going to split it and only make two plays. Um, you know, it, it, it's a unique person that can, that can execute that and really uh, be happy with it. You know, um, uh, I, you know, I, I know maybe just a handful of people that, that could, you know, that can really execute a, a plan like that. But it, you know, from a, from a gambling standpoint, it's, it's, it's a good plan. Um, you know, you have to ask yourself, one of the first questions to ask yourself, uh, I think is what you want out of your gambling game. Um, do, do you want entertainment? Uh, you know, are you willing to pay for entertainment? Then I think, you know, you, you should bet every race. And you should, you know, you should just figure out, you know, what you, what you uh, think is reasonable to put at risk that day and then divide it up in whatever way you want and, and play every race and have fun. And, you know, if you're a guy making a lot of money, I have friends that come to the track and that's what I tell them, you know, you, you know, you want, they say, I want action. I want a horse every race. I say, you know, that figure up what, you know, what's a, what's a, 
day out worth and split the betting up and, and, and let it rip, you know, have fun, get your release and then go back to work and make, make the money you're making. But if you're trying to be a winning horse player, if you're trying to be a winning gambler, then you know, that's a whole nother thing. So the first thing a person has to do is decide who they are and what they want from their gambling. Um, because the advice is different depending upon, you know, what you're, you know, what you want out of it. Uh, if a person wants to be uh, a winning horse player, that's very hard to do. Uh, and a, and a person is going to have to do a lot of, uh, a lot of studying, going to have to do a lot of watching replays, going to have to do bias work, do trip work. Uh, and they're going to have to be a good gambler. They're going to have to really, uh, study just like they study the handicapping, they're going to have to study how to bet the money and how to manage the money. And, and, and maybe I glossed over that on the earlier question and, and got off into the professional player tangent on the money management. But, uh, you know, at any level, at, at any level, no, you're good. You're good. You know, money management is a, is a key thing. I, I say all the time that, there are, you know, hundreds of handicappers at the races that are every bit as good a handicapper as I am. Um, and yeah, I know lots of them, but there are very few people that you could put in front of a computer screen and have them bet every day and, you know, make tens of thousands of bets over the course of a year that would show a profit and you know the obviously the money management is the reason um most people you 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 can't control your human emotions well enough to win at a gambling game and that and that's still a struggle for me after all these years every all your human emotions basically urge you to do the wrong thing think of it when you're you know when you're having a, a great day at the races or when you're having a you know a, you're on a hot roll betting sports maybe uh you know you got your favorite music's kind of running through your head you're loose you're relaxed you're seeing the ball everything is very clear to you it's easy to pass a bet you're in total control now, now think about when you're at your, you know, when you're on your worst roll and you cannot win a photo to save your life. You're taking a bad beat at the end of every game. You're, you're getting DQ'd in horse racing. You're getting four winners out of the pick five every day. It's just maddening. And how does that feel emotionally? Well, what we, what every ounce of our body is telling us to do is chase what we lost. You, you got, you have like a pounding in your head that the only thing that's, that's going to make it go away is if you get back to even and, and your, your, your body is pushing you to do everything the humanly possible to give yourself a shot to get back to even. 
So you end up making more bets on a day when things aren't going your way and you obviously aren't at your best gambling-wise for whatever reason. You end up so much more involved on a day like that sometimes than you do on a day when, when you're – when you're at your best gambling wise and you're seeing the ball. So that's wrong. You know, that's the opposite. We all know that of what we should do, but, and sometimes we're able to, you know, to, uh, to fight those urges, but not always. I see guys go on tilt and just break down and give into that constantly. I have my whole life. So, um, I think it's important to understand, and that's one chapter of the book, that's basically what it's about, is to understand the emotional and psychological aspects of gambling. So when we get those urges, we recognize them for what they are. They're the little devil on your shoulder that's trying to get you to do the wrong thing. And and that chapter that you're speaking about really it it changed how i was playing i was a little too loosey-goosey um and and i wasn't sharpened enough um so thank you for adding that chapter because it it is defeating (laughs) you know having five out of six in the pick six uh and you see the winner goes and hits 20k and like recently at Gulfstream. It's rough. It's rough seeing that and the what ifs exactly. and could have beens and should haves. But uh, you know, close only almost only That's counts true. in uh, uh, horseshoes and hand grenades, know, I right? I don't know about the sports betting part, but uh, in in horse racing gambling, it's so easy. And I think it's probably easier than it is maybe in in sports gambling because you know in in the racing world, you can turn a, a fifty dollar bet into ten grand. Uh, I don't know how many team parlay you'd have to do that. You'd have to hit to do that in, in sports betting, but you know, that, that can be, you know, it's commonplace in racing to have that shot. Anyway, it's not commonplace to be able to, to make it happen, but um, it's so easy to tell yourself, Hey, I lost, you know, 20,000 this summer at Saratoga, but you know, those two pick fives, if I would have hit either one of those, I'd have broke even. So, you know, you had a disaster. I mean, you know, you were a, you were a fire, you were, you were blowing up and, but yet there's a seemingly logical thing you can tell yourself that sounds like you barely missed. So, you know, all those things are, they're dangerous because they're, they're, they're crutches and and to a person that's trying to be a, a winning player, you know, the the entertainment thing, like I say, is a whole different deal. But if if you're gonna try to climb that mountain of of beating a game, um, you know it's a long, hard climb, and you you know you better buckle up, and you and most most importantly, you better be honest with yourself every day uh, because you never get there if you're you know if you're lying to yourself. And that wraps up part one. Man, what a, a lot of lot of stuff to take in from that. Um, a really, really uh, emotional story in there about his dad. That that one always gets that that story when when you read it, it's tough. Hearing him retell it, oof, 
it's a gut punch, but it's a beautiful story. Um, if you are interested in betting with an edge, PTF has some copies available at Looms Boldly on Twitter. Hit him up. Say, hey, I, I need to get a copy. He'll, he, he's got a few laying around from what he told me. Hit him up. All right. Um, and I, hopefully some of these fly off the shelves. Uh, anyway, so Wednesday, we will be seeing you back, me and Peach. Um, Friday, Emmett Kennedy, like I said, please follow. Uh, like, rate, subscribe. At Peach, P-I-E-S-C-H, underscore Stewcast on Twitter. And that pretty much wraps it up. We will see you Wednesday. Part two of Mike Maloney will drop a week from today. Dropping this on Monday. So we'll drop, what is it, uh, Monday the 18th or something. All right. For Peach, I'm Stu. And we're out.